But now, all that new suburban infrastructure isn't so new anymore. And because densities in the suburbs are low, that means the cost per capita to maintain or replace them is astronomical. So we've kind of strangled ourselves with this excess of infrastructure. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. This week on the podcast, we have special guest Rick Rybeck. Rick's an attorney with a master's degree in real estate and urban development. He has served as the deputy administrator for transportation policy in the District of Columbia DOT and today serves as the director of Just Economics, a economics and advisory consultancy out of Washington, D.C. They work nationwide, helping cities and states and communities and organizations to apply economic principles to get just results. Rick, I'm glad you're on the podcast today. You and I had a great time in Washington, D.C. when we got to sit down and chat, and I wanted to have you on the podcast to share some of your knowledge and insights. Thanks, Chuck. Pleasure to be here. What I'd like to start with is I'd like you to talk about, if you can, our current approach to taxing at the local level, primarily property tax, sales tax, and then fees, and and why that's not necessarily the most advantageous approach? Well, that's a good question. And I would say that since World War II, our governments, both at the national and the local level, have relied more on general taxes than on what we used to call user fees. Right. And that has both advantages and disadvantages. But one of the problems with relying on general taxes, and by general taxes I mean things like income tax, sales tax, and things like that, is that we become somewhat disconnected from the public goods and services we're paying for. So we pay taxes, and they go out somewhere, and we're not sure we're getting what we're paying for. But at the same time, you know, we take for granted that when we turn on the tap, clean water will come out, or that when we get in our car, we can get to where we're going. We don't even think about the public infrastructure we consume when we drive because it appears to be free. You know, the traffic signals, the street lights, the paving and the pavement markings, all those things that make it possible for us to reach our destination safely and efficiently. And that's one of the problems with infrastructure is that when it works well, it almost becomes invisible. Right. By disconnecting what we pay in taxes from what we receive in public goods and services, it has an impact on our behavior. So, for example, we could pay for, let's say, water services out of a general sales tax. I mean, we could. But then if somebody had a leaky faucet, would they have any incentive to fix it? Would they decide, oh, gosh, my faucet is leaking. I should go out and buy an extra pair of shoes to help pay for all the water I'm using. <laughs> they, would, they wouldn't do that. Right. But because we pay for our water by the gallon, when somebody has a leaky faucet, they say, hey, that's money going down the drain. I ought to fix that. Right. And so there's a benefit to that kind of user fee principle. Likewise, in some of our cities where we have terrible traffic congestion at rush hour, we give people a signal because we don't price the roads. It appears to be free to drive and park in congested places at congested times. And then at rush hour, our politicians go out and look at all the congestion and say, are people crazy? Why are they driving at congested places at congested times? <laughs> well, in part, it's because we give people very bad information. And people are making the best decisions that they can, but they've got some bad information to start with. If we made it more expensive to travel at rush hour or to park in congested places, people who had the choice would then maybe do their errands in the middle of the day or in the evening when it would be less expensive, and this would reduce traffic congestion at rush hour. So one of the things that we could do to make our infrastructure work better would be to rely less on things like the sales tax or the income tax and more on what I call user fees and access fees. 
And if you'd like, I can explain the difference between the two. I want to get to that in a sec. I want to make sure that people have a real good deep grasp of the way our current system kind of distorts things. And I loved your example of the water faucet because here in our office, we rent some space and our landlord came up and said, you know, the toilet in the bathroom, you know how the toilet will kind of run a little bit? Like if you don't, sure. you got to jiggle the handle. Right. You know, he says to us, when you leave in the evening, could you just stick your ear in there and see if it's running and jiggle the handle? And he went on to tell us that they got a thousand dollar charge, which, you know, we pay 210 a month. So that's like, you know, almost five months of our rent. They got a thousand dollar charge because the toilet wasn't working. And uh-huh. I thought, you know, I just get a new, uh, <laughs> a new jiggly thing, you know, in our current system, it seems to me like what we do is save people from pain in a sense or discomfort in having these essentially slush funds where all this money comes from. Is that a fair analysis? And I think it's kind of a misconception when you say save people the pain. Yeah. And I'll give you a real world example. In Washington, D.C., we built a new baseball stadium just south of the Capitol in an area that was very run down and derelict, a lot of vacant industrial land, parking lots, limousine garages, a few adult nightclubs, stuff like that. And although there wasn't a lot going on there because of its location, It was just chock-a-block full of traffic at rush hour. And now there's this new stadium that's going to be pulling people in. Most of the games are in the evening. They start about 7.30. So all these people would be driving to the stadium just at the most congested hour of evening rush hour. Right. And one of the things that we were concerned about was people trying to park along the streets, which were unregulated because there was no need for parking meters or any kind of regulation there before. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to think, well, how do we avoid two things? We don't want to have a lot of excess auto traffic there because, you know, that'll make rush hour worse. The other thing is that this is a neighborhood that's undergoing revitalization. So there are new residents and new businesses there. And if somebody comes and parks on the curb for a three-hour ball game, the dry cleaner or the little hamburger joint isn't going to be able to get customers for three hours because the curb's going to be all parked up. Sure. So one of the things we decided to do was put in some computerized parking meters that would charge the standard rate for downtown parking for the first hour. And I think that was a dollar or two an hour. That's fine. But as I indicated, most baseball games last for three hours. So if somebody was going to try to park at the curb for three hours – the charge for the second and third hour, initially it was going to be $12 wow. an yeah. hour. Yeah. Well, when we rolled this out to the Washington Post and told the reporter about this plan, he said, well, who the hell do you think is going to pay $12 an hour to park at the curb? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we said, that's <laughs> the point. We don't want people paying $12 an hour to park at the curb, and we don't think anybody will want to. But because we price it that way, people who decide they want to drive are going to park in the parking garage next to the um, ballpark, which is off-street parking, because that'll be probably less expensive than parking at the curb. Right. And that'll free up the curb for residents and the neighborhood businesses. And so the point of the story, it's a long way of getting around to my main point, is that prices, user fees are more than just money out of our pocket. Like in this case, some people's reaction when we said, well, we're going to raise the parking price, it's, oh, you're just trying to gouge us. But no, actually, we weren't trying to do that. What we were really trying to do was give people better information so that they could make better decisions about how to get to the ballpark. It turns out there's a metro rail subway station half a block from the stadium. So by making it cheaper to take the subway, indeed, that's what most people do. Right. And for those people who feel that they need to or have to drive, they can use the off-street parking facilities, which are cheaper than the curbside for the length of the ball game. And that frees up the curbside, you know, for people who are residents or people using the neighborhood businesses, and they pay a buck or two an hour and they get in and out and do their business and no problem. So the key is that prices are more than money out of our pocket. Prices are information that help us 
make better decisions. When we move away from user fees, like the per gallon fee for water or parking fees, and say, well, we'll pay for it all through a sales tax. At one level, people say, oh, this is great, because it annoys me when I have to pay at the parking meter or pay for my water bill based on how many gallons I drink or how many gallons I flush. And I like it that it's in the sales tax because it's invisible. Well, yeah, at that level, it becomes, as you would say, less painful. But at the other level, it divorces us from the things that we're actually doing. And it gets in the way of good decision making. Let me ask you this about congestion. And we pay for major transportation infrastructure in this country through, I guess, the gas tax and then borrowing a bunch of money and pretending that, right. you know, someday we'll pay it. Yet we still have all of this congestion. And we get these reports every now and then from the Society of Civil Engineers about how we have to spend all this money to maintain these systems. What kind of signal is congestion? And in your kind of lens of viewing things, what are you interpreting beyond just there's a lot of people out here that want to use this road at this specific time? I mean, the first thing to recognize, of course, is that in some respects, congestion is kind of a problem of success. Right. In other words, cities and towns where the factories have all closed down and all the stores have closed down, they generally don't have a congestion problem because... There's no congestion anything. in Detroit. That's right. Right. So... Yeah. On the one hand, that congestion is an indication that things are happening, people are doing things, and that's a good thing. But it's a bad thing because, especially if it can be avoided or ameliorated, congestion is like friction. It just gets in our way. It wastes our time. It wastes our energy. It wastes our money. It robs us from having time with our children and our families, and it makes us less productive both at home and at work. So it's not a good thing. Again, the way we pay for our road infrastructure is typically through a tax on gasoline. And that's kind of has an interesting history. When the interstate freeway system was being considered during the Eisenhower administration in the 50s, some of the people who were involved in that thought that the best way to pay for it would be through a toll system because people would pay based on the miles that they traveled and wouldn't that be the most fair way of paying for the system. And while the economists and the intellectuals generally agreed with that, they also realized it was going to be very impractical to have toll booths everywhere. It would be very expensive to maintain them and to have them staffed. And it would slow the traffic down, which of course was contrary to the whole purpose of the freeways. And they said, well, maybe if we put a, a tax on gasoline based on the number of gallons people used, it would be a surrogate for this toll. And to some extent, it does provide that surrogate. The more you drive, the more you pay. But there are a couple problems. And with the problem particularly related to congestion is that you pay the same gas tax whether you're idling in your driveway or traveling on an empty road or traveling on a very congested road. Right. And indeed, the cost to my neighbors is much higher if I'm traveling on a congested road than if I'm just driving on an uncongested road or idling in my driveway. Like with the faucet dripping, there's no economic signal to tell me when I enter a crowded road that I'm making life worse for everybody. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about traffic congestion, most people don't think about this, is that it's not a linear function. A lot of people think, oh, well, as I add cars to a roadway, it gets more and more congested. It actually doesn't work that way. It's more like what economists would call a step function, which is that if a roadway has a certain capacity per lane mile at a given speed, starting, let's say, at 3 in the morning when there's no traffic, we can add cars to that section of road and for every car we add, there's no noticeable increase in congestion unless and until we get close to the carrying capacity of that lane at that speed. As soon as we get close to the carrying capacity, then as we start adding cars, the people who are traveling on the road have to slow down to let that merging car into their lane. And all of a sudden, it takes very few additional cars at that point 
to create a noticeable impact on congestion. And so everybody now has to slow down to allow these cars into the road. Now, the thing that's kind of interesting is that when cars are moving slower, they don't need quite as much space between one car and the next. So as the cars slow down, now this segment of road can accept more cars. So the congestion starts to ease up a bit and more cars get on. But now we have a new capacity at this lower speed. And when we start to reach that capacity, again, a few cars entering the lane will cause a noticeable increase in congestion or drop in speed. This kind of ratchets down. And the point of this discussion is simply to say that if we were to price the roads based on the distance you travel and how congested the road is, some people's reaction was, well, I've got to drive on that road at that time of day. I don't have any choice in the matter. So you're just gouging me for money and it's not going to make any difference. But as it turns out, there's a fairly substantial number of people who are driving on the road at rush hour who are just doing non-essential things. And because they're not paying any premium for doing it, they don't have any incentive not to do that. If we priced roads based on congestion, if a relatively small number of drivers changed their behavior and decided to drive at a cheaper time, that would have a noticeable impact on reducing congestion. And that's the thing that people need to understand is that sometimes a small change in behavior can have a big impact on the congestion that we experience. It seems like we're comfortable with airlines doing this. Nobody expects to fly the day after Thanksgiving and pay the same rate they're going to pay two weeks earlier when hardly anybody's flying in early November. You know, nobody sure. expects to go to Hawaii in March and pay the same rate they would pay going at a non-peak time. And right. I say March because... in the old days when I was a kid, you used to pay a lot of money for a phone call, a long-distance phone call during the business day. Exactly. But it was cheaper after 11 o'clock at night. So everybody would call grandma at 11 o'clock because that's when the rates went down. We culturally seem to accept that and seem to kind of intuitively understand that and be able to adjust to it. Why is government different? I think we should talk about, at least at some point here, the impact on the disadvantage in society. And maybe you can get to that with this too, but there seems to be a sense that government should operate differently than that, and somehow it would be unfair if government operated with the same pricing structure as, say, Delta Airlines does. There are a couple points. One is that a lot of us are very proud of the free market system that we have. And we're very proud of competition and the way it works and the invisible hand and all that. Unless and until it requires us to change a habit that we're in. And then we don't like it and we find it coercive. So a lot of us are used to free parking. If a place where we've used to park for free all of a sudden charges us even a nominal amount, like a quarter or a, or a nickel to park, all of a sudden we feel very inconvenienced and put out. And it's just because we get used to doing things a certain way. But as you noticed, and as you mentioned, we do accept this from the private sector, and we adjust. And uh, part of it is just what we think in our heads versus what our actual experience is. So, for example, in the Washington metropolitan area where I live, a lot of people think that this idea of congestion pricing, pricing people's use of roadways by distance and by time of day, it's just a very complex idea and how would people wrap their heads around it and it would be such a dramatic change of lifestyle and how would people figure out what it would cost and they just can't wrap their heads around it. And yet, our subway system does this every day and people use it and they don't even think about it. Good point. The subway yeah. here in Washington, D.C., which you've uh, perhaps used a time or two on your travels here, Absolutely. charges people by distance and by time of day so that during the morning and evening rush hours, the distance traveled costs you more. And in the middle of the day and the evenings and on weekends, the distance charges are smaller. So you're always paying by distance, but there's a premium if the system is congested. And it does encourage people who have a choice about when to travel to travel off-peak 
And that makes the system much more efficient because the rush hour is the most expensive service we provide. And so if we can avoid adding trains at rush hour, that saves the system a lot of money and makes the system work better. And it also means the trains have more people on them during the off-peak than they would if people could pay the same at any other time. So it makes the system more efficient both at the crowded time and at the uncongested time. What about the pushback that you get about disadvantaged people, people who are impoverished, and now you're just, in a sense, piling on to something that used to be free, and I have that in air quotes, you know, free congestion obviously is not free. Right. <laughs> the yeah, notion that's that a very good now you're point, asking and them that's to something pay. we hear all the time, particularly, as you, you may know, again, speaking about the traffic congestion example, in some cities, they've taken their high occupancy vehicle lanes and said that people who are single occupant vehicles can use the HOV lane if they pay a charge. And they call these high-occupancy toll lanes. And AAA and a few other groups that represent the interest of drivers, or at least purport to, claim that this is unfair to poor people and that what we're doing is creating Lexus lanes. Right. And certainly, any time we have any economic price on something, it's certainly a lot easier for rich people to afford it than for poor people, by definition. And that's the way it is. But it's been interesting how it's actually played out in reality. In California, where they've implemented a number of these hot lanes, they've interviewed people and found that a lot of low-income people really value those lanes. They don't use them all the time, but if, let's say, a low-income person is trying to pick up their child from daycare and there's a $20 late fee, you know, if they're late picking up their kid, right. it may be worth it for them if they're running a little late to pay $5 to use the high occupancy toll lane and get to their kid on time and avoid the $20 late fee. And again, for a plumber who uses the high occupancy toll lane, and if he uses that and avoids the congestion, he can get an extra job in that day that if he was in the free lanes, he wouldn't. So, even for people who are, you know, making a living as working people, maybe they're even low-income people, these pricing mechanisms work for them. The other thing that we need to keep in mind is when we go to the grocery store, we don't expect filet mignon to be priced the same as hamburger. <laughs> and this is, of course, discriminatory against poor people. But poor people, what we do for them is we say, well, we're going to give you food stamps so that you can afford at least a minimum amount of decent food, and you get the choice about how you spend it. And I think we could do the same with transportation. The other thing that would be very helpful and I think would help people understand the fairness issue is if we use the congestion pricing on roads and use some of that revenue to help pay for transit and make transit more efficient. I mean, that makes sense in many ways. For one thing, by making our roadways more expensive where they're congested, that would encourage people to use transit. And it would be a shame after we encourage people to use transit if that service wasn't there. Right. So it makes sense to use those congestion fees to pay for the transit demand that we'd be creating. But it just so happens that poor people use transit more frequently, more often, and are more dependent on it than affluent people are. So by using the congestion pricing to make transit work better, that would benefit poor people. And the reduction in congestion and traffic congestion, and this is something people don't think about, congestion really affects poor people who are on the bus because buses get stuck in traffic. And if we can reduce traffic congestion and the buses get people to work faster, well, that's a tremendous improvement in terms of the quality of life for people who can't afford a car and who, are, who have to use the bus to get around. So I think there are a number of ways in which we can take some of the sting out of user fees as they apply to people with uh, limited incomes. You talk about transit. I think I kind of want to veer into that now because funding transit with congestion pricing, there's a logic to that. And I get it because you're talking about moving people 
and providing transportation. A lot of driving advocates or highway advocates get upset with that. They may be open to the idea of congestion pricing, but they want it to go into building more lanes or adding more capacity. We're having this conversation here in Minnesota, and I know other places around the country are talking about ways to fund these big commuter kind of rail projects, the ones that are supposed to be supplements to the highway system. I'll call it a cabal. (laughs) They wouldn't appreciate that. This unholy alliance between highway and transit advocates that we see forming in the state and across the country of embracing the sales tax as a way to create that transportation slush fund that will, quote unquote, solve the transportation funding problem. Yeah, I've noticed that trend of the increasing reliance on the sales tax. And as I mentioned at the outset, there are political reasons for it. The reason, of course, as you understand, is that a tenth of a cent increase on the sales tax can raise a huge amount of money. And people hardly notice it. So from a politician's standpoint, it's the ideal tax to impose because people don't notice it and it raises lots of money. Right. But from my perspective, and perhaps from yours also, Absolutely. Uh, it doesn't create the type of economic incentives that help people make good decisions. It has no impact on behavior. Like I said, if we have a leaky faucet or a leaky toilet, we're not going to go out and buy an extra pair of shoes to help pay for all the water we're wasting. So there's that problem. And one of the things that in terms of using congestion pricing to pay for transit is that one of the things that we have to deal with in terms of infrastructure is something that economists call externalities. For people in the audience who aren't economists, all that means is that generally in economics, when I buy something, I'm paying for a benefit I'm receiving or I'm paying for a cost that I'm imposing on somebody else. But sometimes things happen so that I get a benefit or impose a cost and I don't have to pay for it. That's called an externality. And it so happens that infrastructure is just rife with these things. So, for example, people who drive think, why should I help pay for transit? I'm not on the bus. I'm not on the train. I'm not getting any benefit. Oh, yes, they are. In fact, because people are riding transit, there's a lot less people driving. So their congestion is a lot less than it would be otherwise. We had a transit strike here in Washington in 1978, if I'm remembering correctly, and I was here at the time. And rush hour went all day long because people couldn't ride the bus, and there wasn't much of a subway at that time. So most of the people who rode transit rode the bus, and the buses weren't running. And the streets, all the streets, in town and suburbia, they were just chock-a-block full of traffic from dawn till dusk, till way after dusk. I mean, it was just all-day rush hour. It was horrendous. And yet, most of the time, people who drive don't realize that they're getting this benefit from other people using transit. So this is something that we have to help people understand so that they can understand that having people who pay roadway charges, and not to have every roadway charge, but to have some of the roadway charge used to fund transit, it is fair, and it is particularly fair to the people who drive. You wrote a great paper about using value capture to fund Uh transit. Let's talk a little bit about that because I I like to tell transit advocates, you know, instead of seeking out these slush funds or trying to get your fair share of whatever other slush fund you see out there, if you really want transit, go build a place. Go build a place. And that's your best argument for transit there. So why don't you talk about the value capture mechanism and just how powerful that can be? I'll do that. And if you'll permit me, I'll start by going back to our water example. Go ahead. That'd be great. You know, we think it's fair that people pay a per gallon fee when they drink water out of the faucet or they flush water down a toilet. Yeah, I mean, it seems fair. You're paying for the service. Sure. But what about somebody who owns a vacant lot? Should they pay anything at all to the water and sewer authority? I mean, they're not drinking anything. They're not flushing anything. So... At first blush, we might think, yeah, they, they really shouldn't pay anything to water and sewer. But if we thought that, we'd be mistaken. 
And that gets to what I talked about earlier about the distinction between a user fee and an access fee. Imagine that we have a thriving town where people want to live and work, and we have two lots apparently identical about a mile from the center of town. So people definitely want to have a business there or put an apartment building on these two vacant lots. But there is one significant difference between these two lots. One has water and sewer pipes at the property perimeter. The other doesn't have any water and sewer pipes within a mile. Which piece of land is going to be more valuable? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're chuckling because you think the answer to this question is a no-brainer, and it is. The lot that has water and sewer pipes at the edge is going to be more valuable than the one that doesn't. Because the one that doesn't, in order to be developed, somebody's got to either build a huge well and a septic system to handle the sewage and to get drinking water, or they're going to have to pay for an extension of pipes that's tremendously expensive. So that puts that lot at a tremendous disadvantage, and it therefore would be a lot less valuable. But where did that value come from? The landowner of the lot that has the water and sewer pipes at the edge didn't do anything special. It's the water and sewer authority that by putting those pipes there created value on this person's lot. So that lot with the water and sewer pipes at the edge is more valuable, but who should get that value? Should it go to the owner or should it go to the water and sewer authority? And I would contend that that value should go to the water and sewer authority because they created it. Likewise, the same thing happens with transit. And as I shift gears to transit, I want to talk about what I oftentimes call the infrastructure conundrum, or maybe I'll call it the perversity of infrastructure. We create infrastructure like water and sewer, like roads, like transit, to facilitate development. But if we're really good in designing a top-rate piece of infrastructure, and we build it well, and we operate it well, the result is that land around that road or that transit station goes up in value. And the development that we were hoping to facilitate often finds that, gee, That land is now too expensive for us to develop, so they go and find cheaper land further out and develop there. And when people move into that development, they realize, oh, gosh, we don't have the roads or the transit or the water network that we need. (laughs) And they, they make a big fuss to the politicians who, being the good people that they are, will then extend the road and the transit and the water and sewer lines out to this remote development at great cost to the general public. And as soon as they do that, the cycle starts again. Land values go up. Development gets choked off, even though there's plenty of infrastructure capacity to handle more development. And development moves out into the next cornfield. I've seen it so many times. This pattern of infrastructure chasing development away, running after the development and never catching up, I'm not going to say this is the only reason we have sprawl, but it's part of the reason. This is America. Sprawl is tremendously destructive for the environment, and it's destructive for our municipal budgets because we end up with 10 times as much infrastructure to serve the same number of businesses and residents than if development had been more compact around the initial infrastructure location. What can we do to turn this perversity around? And part of it lies in the economic incentives associated with the value that infrastructure creates. In our property tax system, you know, our politicians tell people, oh, we want more housing and jobs. But if you are a landowner and you put up a building to provide housing or jobs for people, well, your building has value and so your taxes go up. Right. On the other hand, if you have a building that's providing jobs and housing for people and you allow that building to deteriorate, the value of the building goes down and your taxes go down. So right. our exactly. traditional property tax punishes people for providing housing and jobs and rewards people for creating slums and for depriving the community of housing and jobs, which seems to be kind of upside down. Totally. What some communities have done to rectify the situation is they've reduced the tax rate on buildings. This makes buildings cheaper to build, to improve, and to maintain. 
And by doing that, it makes it easier for residents to afford to live there, makes it more affordable for businesses to locate there. It means for a business, more of their revenues can go into expanding product and hiring more people rather than into paying rent. So that's a good thing. And that can be a lot better off. Now, of course, communities can't afford to just forego their tax revenue. So the way they make that up is by a higher tax on the value of land. Yep. And it's the value of land that's created by the public infrastructure. So in a way, by reducing the tax on privately created building values and increasing the tax on publicly created land value, we're creating a different set of economic incentives, even though we might be raising the same amount of money. We've now made it cheaper to build and maintain buildings, which is a good thing for residents and businesses alike. And at the same time, we're making it more expensive for land speculators to hold prime land out of use. And it's that prime high-value land next to a downtown, next to a transit station, next to a highway interchange. Well, that's where we want development to occur in the first place. So by creating an incentive to develop these high-value areas, we encourage more compact development, more infill development, and take some of the development pressure off of the remote rural areas that are better suited for agriculture, recreation, and conservation. So it can be really a win-win by relying on value capture, in other words, capturing the publicly created uh, land values that are created by the public in the first place when we provide infrastructure. This is what I call an access fee or value capture. I've actually seen the DOT here when they were doing a project where the highway was being realigned actually go in and compensate a gas station owner. The whole conversation we we're having is, well, we're realigning the highway. There's this gas station here. They used to have 50,000 cars a day that went by. Now they're going to have 5,000. And so we're going to have to buy them out. We're going to have to buy them out and compensate them for this loss of traffic. And then look over on the same exact project where you're building a new intersection that's going to have a new gas station on it. And look at that as like, well, you know, that's a windfall for whoever owns that property. The state has no interest in capturing any of that value or assessing that person any charges or taxing that person at all. This is just somehow, you know, we've essentially picked a millionaire and bestowed on them all of this public good. You've raised a really good point here, which goes to something that people who are protective of the Constitution talk a lot about, which is the takings issue. Exactly. And... Our Constitution says the government can't take your property unless, the big unless, A, it has to be used for a public purpose. So we can't take your property just to enrich a a government official, theoretically. Right. And B, if it's for a public purpose, not a private purpose, if it's for a public purpose, we have to compensate the property owner whose property we're taking. Well, I think that's a great part of our Constitution. I'm very proud that it exists. But what you mentioned is that that's just one side of a double-sided coin. Amen. Yes, sometimes the government takes property, but sometimes the government gives. And while we have a constitutional provision that handles takings, we don't have any law, apparently, that deals with givings. (laughs) That is a good way to put it, yeah. And to just take your example about the gas station and magnify it a little bit, talking about the D.C. area subway. It cost about $10 billion to build the subway system in the Washington, D.C. area, at least the initial uh, 89 or 90 miles of it. A study was done about what happened to land values around the stations, and a very conservative estimate of the increase in land value after they factored out the general increase of, of land value inflation in the whole region and looked at just the increase due to the fact that it was close to the station. More than $10 billion of land value had been created. Well, what this tells us is that the subway system could have been financially self-sustaining, right? Right. It could have paid for itself if it had been able to recapture the value that it created in the first place. But instead, this $10 billion of land value the vast majority of it ended up as a windfall 
to people who were lucky or shrewd enough to own land around the stations. And as you might imagine, those were probably not the poorest people to begin with. Right. So my father has a wonderful phrase, which I enjoy. He calls this welfare. In other <laughs> words, it's welfare to the wealthy. Yes. We build public works, and these public works, whether they're roads or transit systems or water and sewer, end up enriching people who own the best-served land, and they tend to be the most affluent and powerful people to begin with. Right, yeah. So we're taking everybody's tax dollars and concentrating enrichment on a very few privileged individuals. One of the benefits of using the value capture system and techniques is that we can take publicly created value and return it to the public that created it. And this means that we could have lower taxes on wages, on income, on capital, make our communities more friendly, both for labor and for business, simply by recapturing the land values that we create in the first place, rather than giving them away. And it's sad that you see cities like Detroit and other Rust Belt cities that create an enormous amount of land value, and then they give it away and complain that they're broke. Right. And their solution then is to raise taxes on businesses or labor, which then chases jobs away. I see it all the time. I think you do have that correlation between the people who influence projects. I mean, we have a project going on here in my hometown that's now working its way through the legislative process. Never been a public hearing, not part of any public plan, not part of any, you know, just essentially a insider driven project. It feels a little bit incestuous almost that in a time when we seem so choked for money to make good capital investments that we're wasting it on a project that is going to benefit a very few. And part of the problem, too, is that a lot of politicians who, for whatever reason, don't understand the types of dynamics we've just been talking about, they're desperate to have new development. And a developer who understands the pernicious impacts of the current property tax would say, well, you know, I'd love to put this development here and create jobs and housing, and I know it would be great for the community, but, you know, the property tax impact on my development would make it uneconomical for me to do it, so I'm going to request a tax abatement in order to build my project. And the politicians will say, gosh, well, I hate to do this, but you know, if I don't give them the abatement, there's no project, there's nothing. Yeah. So it's better to give an abatement, get something. And so they end up giving this tax abatement to the big developer. Meanwhile, the little mom and pop landlords and businesses, they have to pay the property tax. So they end up subsidizing the big development that may even compete with them and put them out of business. It's very unfair. How do you? But if we use value capture, yeah. not only could infrastructure be self-sustaining, but think how much more fair it would be. Right. Because people would be paying in proportion to the value they receive. In other words, how valuable your land is, is in direct proportion to how valuable the community has made your property in terms of a great place to do business or to have housing or to have shops. But here's the problem so with that. people would be paying in proportion to the benefit they receive, and what could be more fair than that? But here's the problem. I run into this all the time. We would do far fewer projects, would we not? In theory, if we did that, if we said, okay, we're going to do this transit project or we're going to do this highway project or we're going to do this uh, utility extension project, and the cost for this are going to be essentially captured through the value that's been added to wow. all you property owners out there who are going to see your value go up. We would do far fewer projects, would we not? Well, it's hard to say. I, what I would say is that the projects that we did would be more productive. <laughs> yeah. I think there'd be a lot more enterprise around those projects. So I suppose maybe some of the infrastructure lobby might not like it right? because maybe we could get by with fewer roads and fewer utility lines and fewer water and sewer pipes, but there'd be a lot more private construction and it would be more compact, which would mean it would be easier for people to walk or bicycle or use transit rather than sort of making us all dependent on our cars to get everywhere. So people would have more choices. And because 
development would be more compact, we could actually have less congestion because more people could walk or bike or take transit to get from one place to the next. About a year ago, the National Society of Professional Engineers came out with a cover article called, you know, I think it was something like What Went Wrong? And it was this lament about how, you know, we find ourselves today with this huge deficit in our revenues compared to what our ongoing maintenance cost is for all this infrastructure. I think that gets back to what I was talking about, that after World War II, we moved away from user fees and toward these sort of general purpose fees that disconnected what we created from what we were paying for. Right. And we had this kind of ethic, especially for roads, but I think it applied to other infrastructure as well. The government's attitude was everything for everyone, everywhere, all the time for free. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) You know, so we had roads everywhere. We had new schools going up, water extension, and, and nobody knew who was paying for it. Because it all came out of the general fund. Right. We're all paying for it. And we all what happened right. was is that people who lived in the cities were subsidizing these suburban developments, which, due to racial covenants, sometimes were inaccessible to them. Right. But it was a great transfer of wealth, and people moved into these suburbs with all this new infrastructure. And it was great, because by moving away from the city, they could escape the land speculators who had made downtown land so expensive and they could get access to cheap farmland and they move into a new neighborhood with new infrastructure so the taxes could be low because the infrastructure was new and didn't cost anything to maintain and this was kind of a a wonderful dreamy period for people but now all that new suburban infrastructure isn't so new anymore right and because densities in the suburbs are low that means the cost per capita, to maintain or replace them is astronomical. So we've kind of strangled ourselves with this excess of infrastructure. We've destroyed our environment. We've destroyed our municipal budgets. And we've created a lot of tax revolts. I think we could move in a better direction simply by understanding how the economics works. And understanding that as painful as taxes and fees are, it's not always about getting money out of your pocket. And one of the slogans I developed when we, going back to the parking fees that we did around the stadium to discourage people from driving to the ballpark. Yeah. The slogan I came up with was, it's more about getting into your head than getting into your wallet. Sure. People forget that prices are information. It's more than just money. And with this good information, we can make better decisions about where to build, about when and where to drive, about when and where to use transit. And that can make life better for our environment. It can reduce pollution. It can reduce energy consumption. And it can make it easier for us to do the things we do on a daily basis in terms of getting to work, affording a place to live. It can really improve our quality of life. To wrap up here, let me throw a couple memes that percolate around society today and just have you kind of quickly react to them. First one, this one comes from the Society of Professional Engineers. Taxpayers are cheap and just don't want to pony up and pay their share. Well, that's true for everybody. Nobody wants to pay for something, especially if they can get it for free. We've created a culture where people have apparently, and of course this When you dig down, you realize it isn't true. But it appears to be free to drive on a congested road or a congested time. And it appears to be free when we turn on the tap and get clean water. And we're very unconscious about what we're getting and what we're paying for it. So, yeah, people are cheap, and that's just always true. But if you create a system that's fair and charges people based on the benefits they receive or the costs that they impose on their neighbors, you know, we're used to dealing with that, too. And when those systems are instituted, people deal with them okay. For example, there are places where they do congestion pricing on roadways. It's done in London. It's done in Stockholm and Singapore. And even though these are different countries, people are people. And when these systems were proposed, people were up in arms. It was going to be terrible. Right. But when it was implemented, the traffic congestion disappeared almost overnight 
I mean, the results were instantaneous. Yeah. People found a way to make it work for them. And now you'll find that there's a fair degree of political acceptance of these systems now that people have gotten acclimated to actually using them and are not just fantasizing about how horrible it might be. Right. So that's part of the challenge politically is how do we overcome the fact that we've acculturated people to not paying for infrastructure? How do we get people to move into a system where they pay a fair price for a fair product? Okay, conservative argument. What you're talking about is social engineering. You're trying to encourage outcomes and behaviors, and that's un-American. Everything we do is social engineering. In fact, (laughs) the biggest social engineering that we did was probably creating the interstate highway system and opening up all the suburban farmland for development. That was a tremendous feat of social engineering. Whether we were conscious or unconscious about it doesn't much matter. We built infrastructure to influence behavior, and people acted accordingly. So I'm not suggesting that we do anything different, except that we be more thoughtful and conscious about what we're doing. Everything that we do in the realm of infrastructure influences behavior. And we can close our eyes and pretend that that we're not, but that's just dishonest. So I appreciate what some conservatives say about social engineering, but my response is everything we do has an impact on behavior. So rather than saying, oh, it's not right to impact behavior, let's just recognize that we do it. And then say, on a case-by-case basis, does it make sense to do it in this circumstance, under these conditions, or does it make sense to do it a different way? And if we have the discussion on that basis, then instead of some ideological black and white, we end up with a more real situation of, well, there are different shades of gray, and we can pick one that's better versus one that's not so good. Okay, liberal argument. Everybody uses it. Everybody should pay for it. And it shouldn't be a kind of a market-based approach that decides what we do. It should be an impartial government bureaucrat, someone who has you know no skin in the game and, and is not going to benefit from it, but can make an impartial decision. Well, it is true that everybody uses infrastructure. And that's why you need both a combination of user fees and access fees so that everybody pays according to the benefits they receive and the cost they impose. There's probably no one-size-fits-all here. The key is to match the right fee with the right consumer and the right beneficiary. So, yeah, everybody drives on the roads, but not everybody drives during rush hour or in a congested place. And for people who have the choice about that, for people for whom it makes a difference, it seems only fair that if they're imposing a cost on their neighbors by adding to congestion, they should be aware of that. And the best way to make them aware of that is through the pricing system. And if, at the end of the day, we find that there are people who, due to their economic circumstances, can't take advantage of some basic minimum level of consumption of infrastructure, we should treat that the way we do food. I mean, what's more essential than food, right? We all need food, right? but we don't go to the grocery store and find everything's priced at a dollar simply because it would be unfair to poor people to price things more than that. We find that prices in grocery store are the prices based on the cost to produce and the demand for stuff. And then for people who are really poor, we give them assistance in the form of food stamps. I think we should do the same in terms of infrastructure. Final one, kind of a Tea Party argument, although I I am sympathetic to some of the Tea Party arguments. I'll quote Michelle Bachman, who I'm not sympathetic towards. Highways are not pork, but transit is. And uh, we should get back to doing the things that Americans do, which is build good roads. That's what made us a wealthy, successful, free country. Well, I don't know where to begin disagreeing (laughs) with that statement. Um, Like I said before, Some people have these black and white conceptions about what government does. I don't. Even though I often consider myself a transit advocate, we can create sprawl with transit, too. Right. 
Thank in you. The yeah, Washington yeah, absolutely. Area, we're now completing an extension of one of the subway lines out to Dulles Airport. I think that's way too far out to be building a subway line. Maybe that's commuter rail territory, but it's not mass transit territory. And I think we're encouraging sprawl by building the system ever outward. So I think we can create sprawl with transit just like we can with highways. And so my first response to Michelle is that, you know, highways can be pork, transit can be pork, highways can be beneficial, transit can be beneficial. You have to look at this on a case-by-case basis. And in terms of how you pay for it, you pay for it based on who the beneficiaries are. And this is where you have to slice and dice things. Because oftentimes we think about the people who are benefiting from the road as the people who are driving on it, or the people who are benefiting from transit as the people who are on the bus or in the rail car. The person who owns the land next to the highway interchange, the person who owns the land next to the subway station, these people may never drive on that road. They may never ride the subway, but they're getting a huge benefit. And that benefit is often invisible to most of us. And so we let them not pay their fair share. Right. Again, it's, it's hard to unpack Michelle Botman's statement in a few words because there's so much going on there. But I do think that if we're thoughtful and have a good conversation, and I, I respect a lot of the Tea Party people. I think that a lot of their negative reaction to government taxes is simply because of what we've been talking about earlier today. Right. Is this conundrum or perversity of infrastructure. If I am asked to pay for taxes for a new transit system, okay, so I pay a tax. If I ride the system, I pay a fare. So I'm paying twice, right? Right, right, sure. But if I really want to take the maximum possible advantage of that new transit system, I'm going to want to have my residence or my shop right next to the station. So I go to the landlord with a fistful of dollars, and I say, here's my first month's rent. And the landlord says, well, that would rent you a place anywhere else in town, but here you're right next to the subway station. You go, oh, of course, it's more valuable. So you pay a premium to the landlord in order to have access to the transit system you've already paid for through your taxes and fares. So no wonder people are frustrated with government. In other words, I end up paying at least twice, in the case of transit, three times for infrastructure. Yeah. Simply, it comes out and it bites me in the rear end because my landlord now charges me higher rent to have access to the infrastructure that I created through my taxes and fares. Well, that's not fair. Absolutely. So so that, I think, is the genesis for a lot of Tea Party discontent, and I'm very sympathetic with that. But what I think we have to do is unpack how we got to where we are and find a better, more conscious and conscientious way forward rather than just deciding, oh, government is corrupt, government is bad. And just to sum this up very quickly, I mean, the people who say, well, government is a problem. If we just got rid of government, that would solve all our problems. You know, the free market can work great without government. Well, really, can it? If you really want a good example of the free market, without any government interference, that would have to be the illegal drug market, right? Sure, right. You know, there's no regulation, there's no anything. But, you know, if you think about it, it doesn't work so well. I mean, I can go down to the corner to buy some cocaine, and I give the guy $100 for a little bag of white powder. I get home, oh my gosh, it's baking soda. (laughs) I didn't get what I bargained for, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, and you're not going to call the cops and complain then, right? Can I take that guy to court? Right. (laughs) Can I say, Mr. Policeman, I was trying to purchase $100 worth of cocaine, and he gave me 25 cents worth of baking soda. I want that guy arrested. I want to, well, the courts aren't going to deal with that, right? Right, right. Because it's an illegal substance, there's no government regulation. So I have a choice. I can either be a chump, or I can go shoot the guy. right. That's what a market looks like without government interference. Right. A lot of Tea Party folks don't realize this, but the vast majority of pages in the Federal Register, which is the publication of all the government regulations, deals with agriculture, deals with defining what's a grade A tomato, what's a grade B tomato. 
And what these definitions do is allow people to buy and sell grade A and grade B tomatoes who may never see those tomatoes or never touch them or look at them. Right. It facilitates commerce. So government regulation and especially our court system in terms of just the enforcement of contracts, getting back to the cocaine example. I mean, our free market system wouldn't work without police and courts to enforce contracts. And that's an example of government interference that's great. And I don't deny that there are examples of government interference that are are nonsensical or counterproductive. Mm -hmm. But we can't make some blanket statement that government's all good or all bad. We have to view these things on a case-by-case basis. Unfortunately, most of us don't have the time, and it allows demagogues to get in and say, oh, I can make things simple for you. This is all black and this is all white. Right. But we have to resist that temptation and understand that while things might be a little bit complicated, if we pay just a little bit of attention, we can understand that complication and we can make better decisions. I know you've given people a lot to think about here. If there are cities, states, public officials, local advocacy groups, or, or whatever that want to get in touch with you, would be the best way to do that? Well, probably through uh, my website. I assume that you'll post my contact information I will. online. I will, absolutely. And so my contact information will be there. They can contact me by email or by phone, and I'll be happy to uh, you know, do what I can to help communities and I should mention that these things that we've talked about, none of this is pie in the sky. Right. All these techniques in terms of user fees and access fees and value capture, these are being used successfully in communities around the country and around the world. And if I can help somebody figure out a way to do that, I'd be more than happy to do so. I think the great thing that you bring to this conversation both with your law background and otherwise, is an ability to communicate this to people too. So these are often tough decisions and tough conversations. That's the real value that you provide is the ability to you know, walk people through this conversation and help them develop a policy and then communicate it to people. That's maybe the most important part. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, we need to learn to do better at telling stories. Yeah. Stories is how people learn. And unfortunately, conservatives have, and reactionaries have become very good at telling stories, and liberals are too busy talking about, well, in fact, I did it myself. I spoke about externalities. What a terrible thing to do. Because <laughs> that, you know, most people, it's just gobbledygook. Right. But, right. you know, if you tell people, hey, the guy who owns land next to the subway stop is getting a benefit that they're not paying for, well, people understand that. Right. Right, And so what we have to do is shy away from our jargon that we worked so hard in school to learn and go back to telling stories that people can understand. And I think that will lead to better outcomes. Perfect. Thanks so much. Rick Rybeck, well, everybody. Well, thank you, Chuck. I hope we can get you back on here again at some point. Be glad to do so. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.
I have to tell you, I've never seen Sam Seaborn get beat the way you beat him on Monday. Yes, well, Mr. McGarry. Leo? Yes, sir. I've been thinking about that ever since your office called me on Tuesday, and I have something to say on my own behalf. If you'll permit me a moment to say it, and I understand if you won't, but I would really appreciate it if you did. I didn't really follow that, but whatever. I think that it is wrong for a man in your position to summon someone to the White House to reprimand them for voicing opposition. I think that that is wrong, and it is inappropriate. It's inappropriate, and I'll tell you what else. It's wrong. Yes. That's fine, except you weren't summoned here to be reprimanded. Well, then if you'll permit me, why was I summoned? You have an interesting conversational style, you know that? It's a nervous condition. I used to have a nervous condition. How did yours manifest itself? I drank a lot of scotch. I get sick when I drink too much. I get drunk when I drink too much. Well, Mr. McGarry... Leo? Yes, sir. I'll ask again, for what purpose was I brought here today? So I could offer you a job. I'm asking because I do not think that it is fair that I be expected to play the role of the mouse to the White House's cat in the game of... You know the game. Cat and mouse? Yes. And it's not like I'm not, you know... The fact that I may not look like some of the other Republicans who have crossed your path does not mean that I am any less inclined toward... Here it comes. Did you say offer me a job? Yes. Associate White House Counsel. You'd report to the Deputy White House Counsel who reports to the White House Counsel who reports to me. I'm sorry. A job in this White House? You want a glass of scotch? Yes, please. <laughs> 